Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. I'm Annie Hanmer, and this is the final installment of the live audio from the Moon Village Association event in Melbourne. In this episode, I join the panel to lead a conversation about space ethics, exploration, and environmentalism. The panelists are Alice Gorman, Gabrielle Harris, Kareed Wendovi, Donna Lawler, and Kerry Doherty. Enjoy. Now we're opening up to question and answers. So, and a dialogue. So, I'd like to introduce Annie Hansmer as the moderator for the, tonight's receive, tonight, tonight's moderation. Annie is a PhD student at the University of Sydney's School of History and Philosophy of Science. She studies the intersection between theories of sociology of science, international space law, and cooperative interdisciplinary space activities, particularly related to space debris. After graduating, Annie accepted a fellowship with a boutique wealth management firm in New York before returning to Australia to join Deutsche Bank as a corporate finance analyst, private equity and industrials. <laughs> in late 2017, Annie left banking to undertake a research PhD in sociology of scientific cooperation in space. And when not studying, Annie hosts her own podcast titled Space Junk, which has an international listener, listenership and features discussions with experts in all facets of Australian space activities. So we're very glad to have Annie here. She's a key communicator in the industry, and uh, we'll leave it with you, Annie. Thank you. Thank you very much, Thomas, and um, welcome, everybody. It is an absolute honour for me to be sitting up here alongside my heroes and a privilege to be here guiding a conversation between all of us here. So welcome to everybody who's joined us tonight. In the spirit of the open and collaborative conversation and to keep it from going too far off the rails, I have only two guidelines for you. The first is to remind you of the grammatical structure of a question, which is that it begins with an interrogative, who, what, where, why, when, how, and it ends with a question mark. And the second is to ask you to please keep your questions to under a minute because we'd like to get through as many different ideas as we possibly can and together come to a new understanding. So I'm about to kick us off with that and give you the time to think about your questions while, um, while we have our initial discussion with a pre-prepared question, which I just happen to have. However, 
I'd also like to take this opportunity to say that if you are cold, which I am because I'm from Sydney, um, there are blankets and I have my spare jacket over there. And if you're cold, please take, you know, feel free to move around, jump around, get a blanket, whatever you need to do. All right, shall we begin? On Monday, I had such, such the pleasure of visiting North Fitzroy Public School and speaking to the Year 6 students about the moon. Um, and we recorded some of that discussion for a podcast that was released on Monday. So if you're interested, you should go and have a listen. But we asked the children, we asked them to talk about what it would be like to look back at the earth from space or to stand on the moon and look at the earth. And they commented that, one in particular commented that she thought that the earth would look sort of lonely and that standing on the moon that she would feel isolated and alone. And so I then asked them, well, what would you want to take with you to make you feel less lonely? And they identified among, you know, among a number of landmarks, the Eureka Tower, Uluru, their own homes, and a library. And I've sort of been haunted by this because it wasn't the answer I expected on either count. And as I listened to, um, to Alice speaking, I wondered if what they were describing, you know, these young people thinking about their place in space, was some form of fear in the face of the ageless, that sense of being terribly alone in the split second that is life in the context of our universe. So I'd like to ask Alice first to comment on this, but also to comment for us on the items that they identified. What might it signify that these children chose not to take iPads and phones and, and computer games like Fortnite, but instead chose familiar landmarks, their own homes and a library? I do love the library. I think that's wonderful. But thinking about those objects, so landmarks are something that is about landscape and community. So landmarks are recognisable things that people used to find their way and used to focus. So one I love in Melbourne is the eight-hour monument, which, which symbolises so much. So I think there's something about familiarity and home and finding a path in a place where you don't have any other landmarks. I think that there's the idea of home. So, so the moon is not our home. Space is not our home. We take so much technology to live there, but transport your own home and then you have your place, you've found your place in space. And I think the, the library is, that, I mean, that's about community and knowledge as well. It's about, I love the idea of, of, of the little girl curled up in her moon beanbag, reading her way through everything that is in that wonderful library. So I think they're so evocative, those objects and those things. But it also reminds me, um, like, there's been a lot of work done with, studies done with children and their knowledge of astronomy and the solar system. Um, and most of the recent studies are about, like, do little kids understand how lunar phases work and do they understand how orbits work? But some studies that were done um, in the two centuries ago, like in the 1890s and the early part of the 20th century, with children were also about that emotional connection. Like, little kids felt close to the moon. They felt that the 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 woodsman in the moon and the old woman in the moon and the rabbit in the moon were like their friends and were looking out for them and communicating with them and they felt the moon was a place that was really until they were about I think like 
eight or nine or something. They felt a full moon that could just walk there, like just walk into it. So I think there's something about emotional relationships to the moon that come out so strongly in, in what you found with your kids in this exercise. I think it's wonderful. Thank you, Alice. Um, I'd now like to ask Keridwen if she would like to comment on this and particularly to this idea that for children looking at the earth, experiencing the overview effect was a reminder of our fragility and a reminder of our loneliness in the universe. And that is a very diff subtly different interpretation to the sort of overview effect descriptions given by the first astronauts or the ones that are used to sell these idea of mass capitalist surveillance. So, Keridwen, would you like to comment? Um, yeah, that little girl is a girl after my own heart. I think the first thing I would pack to go to the moon is a big suitcase filled with books. Um, and I know Alice and I have both done that desert island book uh, thing where you've got to think about the books that you would take to Desert Island. It'd be kind of fun to think about what we'd take to the moon. But I'm actually um, a novelist in my day job and I do often find myself wondering what on earth I'm doing up here talking about space with all these incredibly um, talented people. But I think what appeals to me about space is that at this point in time, everything we do out there is still speculative. So um, it's like a giant thought experiment um, and for me a very deeply ethical one where we can kind of think through and step through some of these questions and um, use that as a way to kind of reflect on our past behaviours and for me that's exactly what it feels like to write a novel um, and for that matter to read a novel. It's also a kind of way of rehearsing for real life um, and so I guess that's part of what I'm doing and getting up here as an amateur and, and feeling like I'm legitimate in having opinion. I'm hoping that everybody who's here, doesn't matter if you're an expert or an amateur or if you're a 12-year-old um, girl in North Fitzroy, I think we all need to see what the stakes are but also feel that our voices can still be heard. And in terms of the loneliness and the solitude thing that she mentions, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the kinds of people who are attracted to going to space and going to the moon and the type of person who would be attracted to that kind of existential dread um, and desire for what they imagine to be solitude or isolation. Um, if you think about the types who are attracted to things like doing solo Antarctic crossings, for example, what would a society on the moon made just by people like that look like? And would any of us want to go and live there? But another more hopeful thing to think about is that we may have it completely wrong. Um, and certainly Annie's done a lot of work um, on Antarctica. And I know in extreme environments, it does attract a lot of loners who think that they're going to be go to these extreme environments and be totally alone and have this, you know, peak experience. But in fact, in those situations, there's a kind of um, hyper-sociality that is uh, enforced upon those people and a kind of mutual codependence that's quite radical. And I think if you're open to it, it's life-changing. You go there wanting to be alone and you come back realising that you cannot survive without 
those other people. And I sometimes think about the communities on the moon that we might build. We may have it completely the wrong way. We may learn new skills and new acknowledgements of our codependence out there that we could bring back to Earth. And in fact, we may be out there and desperate for a bit of solitude because we would be stuck with other people, the hell of other people all the time. Thank you. Which now brings me to all of you, and I hope that you've been thinking and preparing your questions. Um, so if you do have a question or something you'd like to raise, please, I think if you sort of wave a bit, someone will have a microphone. Yep, we're going to borrow some microphones. While so, you do that, let me make a, a quick comment. Please. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, it's just a fascinating thing that what the kids thought about was that isolation on the moon. Um, during the Apollo 11 mission, um, because Armstrong and Aldrin went down to the surface and Mike Collins remained in the command module uh, orbiting the moon. And all, you know, there's a lot of newspaper headlines back on Earth or, you know, commentary that referred to him as the loneliest, you know, the loneliest man in the universe uh, because he was completely isolated. Armstrong and Aldrin, there were two of them, so they were company for each other, but he was completely alone, far away from everybody, and at times actually out of contact with Earth when he went behind the far side of the moon. And yet he has said in various interviews that he didn't actually feel isolated, you know, that he, because he had a, a radio link, except those times when he went behind the moon, he may not have had anybody in the command module with him, but he was always in contact with somebody or could be in contact with somebody. So he never felt isolated in that sense, even though that's how it was perceived on Earth that he would be feeling. Well, and, and interestingly, when they've done experiments about people living in moon or Mars habitats, simulated um, habitats, um, there was a famous one in Hawaii where people stayed. I think they were supposed to stay there for a year or more. And uh, they had to abandon the experiment early because of the group dynamics. They were going to kill each other. They actually had to stop. So anyone who's thinking about going to space because they want to be alone, forget it. Go to space because you want to be intensely social. That's really going to be the experience. I might ask um, Gabrielle, since we've all had a go at this discussion point, whether you'd like to, and I wanted to, to mention there, when I was doing my research into Antarctic scientists and how they work together in Antarctica, um, step one was alcohol and step two was more alcohol. But the other thing that was really interesting was how these microcultures formed. And I'd like to get your thoughts on this in a moment. But in one particular case, there was, um, the story goes, and you know, it's always hard to verify these things, that there was a base where they showed the uh, Colin Firth version of Pride and Prejudice, all six hours, every Friday night for an entire winter season. So you can imagine it's dark 24 hours a day. And by the end of the winter season, these scientists had formed their own society, which was this kind of interpretation of Austen's world, where, where it wasn't so much that you'd say pass the salt, it was like, if you would be so kind as to consider <laughs> availing myself of the salt, good sir, and that sort of thing. And when the summer people came in um, after the winter and they've been in this isolated situation, that they, they kind of, they found this group that was intensely hostile because, of course, they didn't know the rules. They didn't know that you had to bow and be introduced before you were allowed to ask whether or not someone wanted to get on the helicopter. So um, anyway, the point of that story, and I'm breaking all my own rules here, but 
Gabrielle, I would love to know, in terms of workplace culture or organisational culture, if we don't want to ground it in a place, um, how do these cultures form? And how, how is it that people come to form these ways of thinking about a particular thing, whether it be fragility or loneliness or whether it is those sorts of people finding themselves stuck together and, and banding together in some way? Yeah, it's interesting when you start to dissect it um, organisationally. When, when we are uh, asked to come in to do an assessment on an organisational culture, we break it down into those two things that I was talking about earlier. So what is the, the system that has been set up? What are the rules, um, for want of a better word? And what are those behaviours and how have those behaviours come to be? And I think, um, you know, aligned to what you're talking about there, it's fundamentally repeat messages, repeat behaviours, shared background and shared experience. And if we really are looking to understand why do we have that shared background, quite frankly, sometimes it's bias because we go and seek out people who are quite like ourselves. So if you think about a group of um, scientists in Antarctica, there's a fair chance that they have a fairly similar background to some degree educationally um, uh, and then they find themselves in this place and they, they get these repeat messages. And those repeat messages start to create their shared sense of value and connection. And then when others from the outside come into that space, uh, they can build up a wall around them because they've now got their shared set of experiences, they've got their shared culture, this is the way that we work here, this is what we do. If you'd like to be a part of that, you'll do it as we do it. Um, and, and these are the things that I think are going to be really important when we start to consider how are we going to set a shared um, set of behaviours when it comes to space exploration because there is a chance there that we will create a community of similar people, similar backgrounds um, like you were talking about before and then as others enter that space, is that really going to be a space that you want to be a part of? Uh, so culture is fascinating when you start to dissect it and you start to explore what does it mean and how have people got those shared messages and was that intentional or was that by accident? Um, and more often than not, we find that it was by accident. It was uh, simply a repeat message that happened at a period of time and it stuck and unsticking is the tricky part. Uh, so being intentional about what you're creating is absolutely paramount in any organisation, in any community at all, uh, because unintentional cultures are the tricky ones to change. Thank you. Do we have any questions from our um, the people who've joined us today? Yes, we've got one up the front. And I think there was someone, yep, in the, the red cardigan. Very nice. We might start at the front. Sure. Uh, Donna, I think you said the US pulled out the moon agreement. Um, I'm just curious, what was the background on that, please? Yeah, well, well, they never actually became a party, but they they were part of the negotiating team that um, and the, it, they agreed with it at the General Assembly. So the whole General Assembly um, uh, approved it, but then there was a lobby group, I think, was it the L5 group? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, so there was the L5 Society which was, I, I think they were actually 
um, interested in, were they interested in creating a community on the moon, a space settlement? And so they vehemently lobbied against it because they didn't like common heritage, the idea that the moon was and the celestial bodies of the common heritage of humankind, and they didn't like the fact that it was um, there was a principle of equitable sharing of benefits. And so that was regarded at that time as, as smacking of socialism. And so it was um, then at the last minute, essentially, they pulled out and then others others followed. But interestingly, in the most recent um, rounds of discussions at the UN, uh, there, there's been strong interest in perhaps other countries, other spacefaring nations, including Russia, in maybe um, joining the Moon Agreement. So there could actually be renewed interest in it. And that may be because of the, uh, essentially, the Moon Agreement is one means of getting certainty over whether or not you have the legitimate right to use what you extract from the Moon. So if you're going to spend a billion dollars in a a mission to get to the Moon and extract resources, are you going to invest in that mission if you're not certain about whether or not you own it or have the right to use it? And the Moon Agreement is one way of acquiring that certainty. So you can either go unilateral, which is the way the United States might be thinking about going, let's just go and do it and see who's going to stop us, or you can do something that has some international um, stamp of approval, either via the Moon Agreement or via perhaps a new regime that is formed um, pursuant to the talks that are going to be starting in April later this year. Thank you. Shall we head there? Did you have a question still? Yeah, I did. Um, this is for anyone who's got an opinion on it, really. But it's, I guess, how democratic do we think the culture will be in space, given that our experience today with missions is essentially they run in a very military command, top-down kind of approach where people have to respect order. So is a future of space, how does dem- democracy fit into that? How does democracy fit into the culture of space? Would you like to take this one first, Donna? You're looking at me. (laughs) Well, interestingly, when I was at the UN last year, I was uh, approached by one delegate delegate who happened to be from Egypt, and he uh, had written a book about how he felt that we needed to completely reset the culture when we go to space. And so his view, I don't think it was the official view of Egypt, but it was the view of this academic who was the Egyptian delegate, um, believed that that there needed to be a, um, and he was talking about a a democratic style of cooperative, more cooperative culture. Um, But, and he did have his say um, at the UN, but it wasn't really taken up. So I think, it wasn't taken up by other states officially, although people listen with interest. Uh, so I think in in reality, the the way that missions operate is going to continue to be a bit of a top-down um, operation, at least for the foreseeable future, in the way they currently operate, very much by people with spreadsheets and project management and chains of command. Um, but it is... Um, it's 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 up to really the people of Earth to make their will known to their own states, and for those for that will then to be made known to at, at the United Nations. That's one path. 
to and, a more democratic future. And just to add to that, um, I, I probably think that at the beginning of, um, well, not it's not the beginning of, but as we move further into exploration, it will be quite command and control. I think it will start that way. Um, missions, particularly military missions, are running command and control ways. It's very hierarchical. It's very top-down. It's very power-driven. Um, many of the big corporations of the world are run in a very similar way. But that is actually changing as I think the um, younger generations are coming into, I can talk about it from a workforce perspective, where they're actually saying I'm not going to be a part of something that doesn't have a clear purpose and isn't actually committed to finding better ways for the planet now and for the, for the universe more broadly. Um, and with more of that mindset and that push, businesses are now going, oh, shit, I suppose I actually have to think about something that goes beyond profit and how it is that we're contributing and giving back. And in time, with any mission or any activity that occurs in space, I think that that connection to purpose beyond profit and exploration is going to be something that people won't want to be a part of unless there's a really clear sense of meaning um, and, and that is the thing that I think is really valuable to start to think about and to explore with um, the general public holistically. How do we create a sense of meaning and connection um, beyond making money and having command and control type missions? I, I, would, I would also add that uh, part of the reason for the command and control and the justification for it is because of the enormous need for safety in space and, and for... Um, a very methodical approach to making sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed because um, it's, not a, it's not an area where you can afford mistakes um, unless you're specifically planning just to test and there's no humans involved. You do have to make sure that everything is absolutely methodically ticked off. However, the very command and control culture that is designed to produce those um, efficient and methodical safety checks can sometimes defeat itself. So, for example, in in um, the, one of the space shuttle failures, I've forgotten if it was the first one or the second one, Kerry will probably know, um, it, investigations later showed that a number of the engineers were unhappy with the launch. They didn't feel it was safe yeah, enough. It was a and challenger. Challenger. And, and, and yet there was political pressure from the top and political, commercial pressures um, to to launch despite their misgivings. So had there been a, a different culture um, at the time that enabled them to – and had they been more empowered and enabled to speak up, um, perhaps that disaster wouldn't have happened. So command and control isn't always the safest way. As a millennial, I can speak to the joy of quitting a job um, whenever you feel that the purpose isn't quite what you want it to be. I'm going to throw to Alice now. You'll just have to share the microphone. I just wanted to add a quick couple of things. I think there will be a critical moment when any kind of lunar population becomes autonomous. And at that moment, the critical decisions about what kind of society that will be away from the influence of terrestrial power structures will then, we will really know, where this is going to go, but that's obviously not anytime soon. And the other thing I wanted to quickly mention here was um, the suggestion which came up in something our friend Elon Musk said recently 
that the early labour force in space is likely to be indentured. We're going to be looking at economies and political systems run or supported by unfree labour. And there are many ways that might be, and we've seen how they've played out on Earth, and we've seen how they've played out in all of the interesting science fiction that has been written about this as well, too. So that's likely to be the more immediate um, issue to deal with around how these things might play out, I think. So we're going to need unions. Well, ho hopefully there'll be indentured <laughs> robots rather than um, indentured persons. <laughs> but um, I think something we do need to remember in thinking about, uh, you know, whether or not uh, command structures allow uh, ultimately for democracy is that the missions that have gone to the moon may have used command structures, but they did so under a democracy. So, uh, you know, democracy was still, has still been in the mix and is still above at the present time the types of command structures that have been used, um, which are employed, as, as Donna said, essentially for, um, you know, for making that, uh, that safety and the efficient operation of the, the mission itself. Now, there may be a point where we find other systems for structuring how a mission is managed as distinct from the larger issue of how the moon is managed. Um, so I don't think we should be thinking at this point that just because the way the mission is structured means that in a command control fashion, um, we shouldn't say that that doesn't mean that democracy is there behind that. Um, you know, I just think we need to remember that, that it's still there. And, of course, is this on? Yeah. Uh, of, of course, there are – because access to space is so much cheaper now, the the domain of – first it was states, then it was just – and it was only military, the military part of states that, that were involved in going to space. Then it was large corporations. But now it's small corporations. Now it's startup companies. Now we've got – I have clients that are planning moon missions – themselves. There are people in the audience right now that are planning massive um, missions to create solar power from space. Uh, there are um, so the scope for different styles of culture and organisation, whether for better or for worse, uh, is certainly there. Large corporations, small corporations. We've even seen a you know very small Israeli group send something to the moon quite recently. You know with. Mixed results, you know, <laughs> an amazing achievement in some ways, and then in other ways, um, uh, crashing well, on there with a bunch of, of yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, everybody else crashed something on the moon, so that wasn't right. too bad. They that's got right. there, and the first tardy grades on the moon, which is an extraordinary uh, event, a landmark, if you will, in the, in the history of our engagement with the moon to to put tardy grades on it. We had another question over here. Actually, I think. can I just add oh, a, yes, a final please. comment? Um, I don't know how many of you have read Alfred Bester's uh, Tiger, Tiger, um, because that, uh, and for those of you who haven't, well worth a read because it essentially postulates a, a future where the corporates have completely taken over and literally become an aristocracy so that the, the head of Kodak, which of course is one of the huge companies, yeah, a bit ironic now, one of the huge companies of the future, he is the Kodak of Kodak. You know, so and the you know the the Exxon of Exxon Mobil or whatever it happens to be, so um, you know that 
maybe that's a cautionary tale for, for the way we don't want the uh, solar system governance to go if, uh, if you know, the uh, corporate commercial interests completely take over the exploration of um, and exploitation of the solar system. Well, I must say on that one, as a former investment banker, and my apologies to all present, um, I have atoned, I hope, um, it was taught to me very early that the board's obligation is to the shareholders. So the obligation is to act in the interests of shareholders. And the interests of shareholders does not always align with the interests of the general public, the interests of the environment, um, or in this case, the, the interests of the moon not necessarily wanting to be populated with tardigrades in that particular situation. I will throw to this question over here. Uh, thanks, everyone. Um, and I must say, I didn't notice it was all female panel and one of you mentioned it. So I think that sort of says a lot about me, maybe <laughs> than anyone else, but congratulations on this. Um, my question and a sort of a comment, I suppose, is that we've got the International Space Station flying above us right now. It was put together, various different countries around the world, a lot of the modules were built in those countries and never connected to each other until they got to space and it all works predominantly. It's also multinational um, uh, occupants. So my question, well, my comment is, well, my question is about what the legal structure on the International Space Station is, how much democracy has gone into it being built, run and operated, and also how that might be an analogue or an example of how the moon might work. It's a, Donna, I hear space law. I think you're up. Uh, no, it's a, it's a fantastic question. And it, it very often, you know, the same people who say space is a wild, wild west of, are fond of also saying that space is contested, congested and competitive. And it's become a, a cliche at almost every space event. Someone will say those three things. But space is also extremely collaborative, if you want, and, and cooperative. And the International Space Station is a fabulous example of that. So it has been established by an international agreement, uh, which has detailed rules about what jurisdiction applies in each module. And um, with the exception of the fact that China was specifically excluded, which is a bit of a flaw, um, it, it's an extraordinary cooperation between the United States and Russia and, and Europe in particular. Um, a bit of a shame that Australia is not part of it except indirectly we're, we're going to be starting to launch things from the International Space Station more frequently, I believe. But I think it's a remarkable example of international cooperation and we've seen recently that it works when, when um, somebody recently allegedly committed a crime from the International Space Station. A lot of discussion, oh no, what jurisdiction applied? It was very clear what jurisdiction applied because of those agreements. So it can work. Alice, did you want to speak about the ISS as our sort of resident archaeological expert? I should also be interested in Gabrielle's opinions. But so, yes, I'm currently working on um, an archaeology of the ISS and how the material culture, the objects and the spaces are kind of used to negotiate personal and um, community identity, how they used to create a society. So, yes, it's a tremendously successful collaborative project, but there's also um, the traces of those, the, the places of origin. So, so the Russian modules are quite different from the US modules. And there are objects like uh, food, which is kind of traded for value between different um, 
nationalities and, and different kinds of groups. So they're like Annie's Antarctic example. They're creating a mini society there as well. But it's one where, um, oh, well, you know, people have stayed up there for a year at a time and at different periods of time where they're constantly sort of crossing over back with Earth. And the stability of that culture and the forms, like, like you were saying, that the accidental forms of culture they get that stick and stay there um, are something that we're very interested in and, and, and actually just a really quick example. So cosmonauts frequently stick icons, pictures of icons, over the entranceway in the Zvezda module. And to most of the crew, they're just pictures. And, okay, that, you know, the non-Russian crew probably think that looks like an icon. Yeah, whatever. But in actual fact, the icons reveal a really complex political relationship with the Russian Orthodox Church that isn't even noticed by the, the, the non-Russian crew. So you have a material object there that's actually increasing social cohesion between a certain um, nationality of astronauts. Um, we have told NASA about this, but not officially. So maybe we'll just keep this between ourselves. So, so, so in that incredible collaborative environment, there are patterns of behaviour that kind of emerge in the way that Annie and Gabriel were talking about as well. So, um, if it lasts beyond the next, I think it's currently twenty twenty eight or something, is the the projected end date. Um, we'll have to see. It's not that far away. Have to see how those cultures have developed in the meantime. Gabrielle, did you want to jump in on that one? Absolutely not. <laughs> and that is a totally acceptable response. <laughs> do we have any further questions? In Oh, yes, we do, down the front here. I was about to jump in with one of my own and, you know. So many questions. But uh, what I'd like to know is whether the, um, you know, the International Space Treaties uh, can whether the uh, private companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, et cetera, are compelled by those treaties? Yes, they are. So, so one of the elements of the Outer Space Treaty is that, that every state, including the United States, um, so every state who has signed the, the Outer Space Treaty, and most of them have, uh, is obliged to authorise and supervise the activities of its nationals. So that means that Elon Musk can't just decide, or his company um, can't just decide... I'm going to go to Mars tomorrow, uh, he has to apply to um, the authorities, the appropriate authorities in the United States for a licence. And those United States authorities, despite their you know, current um, political assertions of unilateralism and so on, in fact, they are actually very cognizant of their international obligations. They're very keen. NASA and and the, the, the FAA and the other supervising authorities are very um, very keen on making sure that the United States complies with its obligations. And so the licences that they issue will make sure that the um, debris mitigation guidelines are um, complied with, at least internally, um, and that environmental matters are taken into account, that, that the spectrum that is used is not infringing... Um, international spectrum agreements um, by the International Telecommunications Union. So, um, yes, they have to follow international law, which flows down international law. The only thing that I find interesting or um, would like to add to that is they're also held to international tax law. And um, 
there's always a lot of energy and effort that goes into maybe finding little ways to consider how you can work around those laws. So for sure, this goes back to thinking about the system and and the legal governance aspects of um, culture. Uh, But there's plenty of examples where we can look to international law and how you can kind of massage those. Yeah, of course there's going to be loopholes. Caridwin? I think also then it puts all the um, emphasis on the US regulatory bodies doing their jobs and being empowered to do their jobs well. And if you look at their failures in terms of the aviation industry, so the FCC and the FAA, have failed, um, like the Boeing disaster we know was directly linked to regulatory um, oversight. And I think, you know, if you look at the SpaceX, the Starlink constellations, they're launching, is it another 200 every week this year? They've already got 11,000. They've got approval for up to 30,000 of these to form a kind of um, mesh around the earth to provide internet to everyone on earth, which again, sounds great on paper. But if you look at some of the unexpected impacts of that on astronomy, no one at SpaceX thought to ask anybody in the space science community, hey, guys, like if we launch all these small objects into space, is that going to affect your ability to do observations? That's what actually scares me the most. I would love to think that SpaceX is totally on it and on top of it. I would sleep much better at night thinking they've got the science down, they're checking in with everyone. But they didn't. And now we've got the International Dark Sky Association, the astronomers around the world saying, what are you guys doing? You're affecting our ability to know what happened in deep time. So, so much for colonizing Mars, we don't even, you know, we won't even be able to see our own origins anymore because of what you guys are doing. And so then there was a lot of backtracking by SpaceX and now they're not going to paint them white and supposedly that's going to fix the problem. But the fact that they could have done that in the first place truly terrifies me. It's true that any 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 regulatory scheme is not going to be perfect, and uh, there's uh, can they do things with complete impunity? Not complete. Are there going to be failures of regulation? Absolutely. Um, is there a class action by astronomers against SpaceX? Yes, I believe there is. So it might be interesting, or at least I think they're talking about it. In our last couple of minutes, um, I believe we have two, and Thomas is starting to give me looks, but I wanted to bring us back for final comments, and to, to stimulate that comments, I would wanted to ask about environmental justice and ethics in space. The students we spoke to on Monday overwhelmingly felt that we should avoid at all costs taking the mistakes that we've made on Earth elsewhere in our galaxy to other planets or to the moon or even to asteroids and they were so strongly of this opinion that it kind of startled me they weren't interested in exploring or or you know mining or any of those things they didn't want to talk about diggers they wanted to talk about the environment and our earth and our obligations to our solar system and to the universe so on that note If we could come up with something slightly hopeful to say, that would be really nice for all of us who are going home this evening and would like to sleep. Um, But really, I'd just like to, and I might start with Alice and then move along towards me and then we'll finish up, but how do we think about environmental justice and about ethics and about our place in space? 
Oh, okay. <laughs> this is something I think about a lot. So, um, well, I think, well, coming back to Kerry's mention of the 1968 Apollo 8 photograph of Earthrise and the impact these images have had on the growth of environmental conscious, consciousness, um, I think the views we're now having are changing. We've got the red Tesla that left the Earth, Elon Musk's symbolic act that left the Earth with the Earth behind us, moving away, looking out into the rest of the solar system. We're going to have the Moon Village Association's payload that's going to show us the Earth on a continuous stream. We're soon going to have many more ways of conceiving the Earth, the Moon, Mars, all these different views of space. And I guess, I don't know, I feel very optimistic that even though I like Keridwan, I'm very sceptical of the overview effect. I do feel very optimistic that people, that the people are thinking about space and wanting to make sure we get it right and wanting to make sure that we don't simply mess the whole thing up again. So I guess... I guess I feel we're starting to develop a new consciousness of the whole space environment in a way I think is very positive. And I think you're all here because you have thoughts about that too and, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I'd echo um, quite a bit of what Alice is saying there because I do feel positive that we're having these types of conversations now uh, and... We haven't populated yet uh, and from an environmental perspective what what I hope is that we recognise that just because there is this possibility out there that we don't stop trying to work on what we need to fix here. Um, that that for me is a, is a huge priority. How are we all thinking about our actions now and not thinking that there might be some escape route? Um, but also, I think if the you know going back to the question of um, I guess the environmental ethics component of it, uh, trying to get the next generation really actively involved in these discussions is imperative in my view, and probably what's actually going to help us not take the mistakes of the past forward into the future. Uh, but it takes commitment and it takes attention. Um, and focused by people like Thomas that's working on these kinds of things every day and thinking about this every day because you have to actively put yourself out there to do it. We've all got uh, important things in our lives that generally take up our focus. So thinking beyond ourselves and thinking beyond the day-to-day -day is really what's going to help us to ensure that we're creating an ethical and um, environmental opportunity for the future. <laughs> um, I know it might not seem like I'm very hopeful, but actually being in the company of these women and through the last few years, ever since I met Alice and she infected me with this bug, um, I have just been blown away by the people in this community who are doing really different and unusual thinking and... Um, I feel really lucky to be part of these conversations and I feel, um, you know, Greta Thunberg has taught us that 
it's okay sometimes to stand up and say, you know, there's no adult in the room who's <laughs> thinking about these things. And I think um, in that way we should feel empowered to also take all of those lessons that we've learned from climate change and sort of apply it before it's too late. I, I think um, the elephant in the room, which was alluded to by this question here, is is... is is the United States. And for me, the question about whether or not we're hopeful and how ethics are going to play out in space is going to, uh, if not depend, it will be strongly influenced by their behaviour. And so I, I perceive that they are teetering on, are we going to just go it alone and ignore the international community and say, stuff these international treaties, we're doing what we want? Or are they going to say, well... As much as we like to say that, really, we we actually do want to stick with a rules-based order. Uh, we don't want everybody... We, we can see the advantage of having... If, if we go off and do what we want, then everybody else is going to do what they want and that's going to hurt us ultimately. And the United States has an awful lot to lose if people stop following the rules in space. There are rules. If people stop following them... In fact, we could ruin space entirely and no-one will be able to play. And no-one relies on space... Um, more than the United States and particularly the United States military. So their entire military advantage, bizarrely, relies on international cooperation. So my weirdly hopeful view because of that, it's funny to go via that, isn't it? The, the, we rely on the fact that the United States military uses space. It's going to give them a huge incentive to realise actually we have to cooperate with everyone on Earth. We have to um, maintain, even though we're tempted to move away from the Outer Space Treaty, um, which bans national appropriation, we're going to have to stick with it because otherwise no one will play with other rules and then no one will be able to play at all in space. So if we don't play by the rules, no one's going to play at all. And I think that is, for a weird reason, the reason why we have... Um, reason to be to be hopeful it's because of those precious treaties which actually do hold very dear um, which are examples of cooperation and not competition so that's my view well I'm an eternal optimist anyway um, but of course most of my favorite points have already been covered by everyone before me so I'm actually going to uh, finish with a bit of an anecdote um, when Annie first was talking to me about planning this um, interview with the, uh, the six-class kids. I told her about uh, something I was involved in back in uh, the early 1990s, which was an essay competition through the Institution of Engineers. And at that time, um, the national competition topic was, um, you know, what, what could Australia do in space or what would be the future of exploring um, the moon and the asteroids and so forth. And a curious number of the responses to that were that we should turn the asteroids into penal colonies. And, you know, I was quite gobsmacked by that response. And so it didn't even come, like, from one school. It, it was, was quite a widespread result, so which was quite perplexing. And so I think it is incredibly hopeful that this time around, so 30 years later, it is actually about 30 years later, the response we've had from kids of that same age is that 
They're not thinking about penal colonies on the moon or the asteroids. They're thinking about environmental justice and, um, you know, how we're really going to uh, utilise space in the future. And so I think that's something to be very hopeful for because they're the ones who will ultimately, uh, you know, they're the generation that are going to be going out there and doing all of this. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to um, welcome Thomas back and close out that bit of the conversation. But of course, um, you know, feel free to get in contact with any and all of us at any time. Um, and the, the hashtag is Hello Earth. And so you can find us there. Thank you, Annie. Uh, yeah, look, if you would like to follow anyone on the panel, please get on the social media and uh, you can see them, see them there. And I recommend purchasing their books. Uh, reading each of those. They're fascinating and more informative if you'd like to follow up. And thanks to Rami down the front here for covering with Space Australia. Thanks to the guys filming, Australia Space Association. Always good to have you here. And thanks to everyone here for coming. It's, it's an unusually cold night for February and you've all braved it out. And we've had such a good time preparing this event and enjoyed that and had fun through it. And we hope you've really gained something from it tonight few different perspectives and if you'd like to stay involved you can reach out we are sending this camera to the moon to live stream a whole earth that's a planned mission and i think some of these conversations will wrap into how we do that in the coming years so thank you again and please give a warm thank you to the speakers thanks and have a great night You've been listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to get in contact, send me an email at thespacejunkpod at gmail.com or look me up on Twitter or Instagram where I'm at Annie Handmer. You can also support this podcast by heading to www.patreon.com slash thespacejunkpod. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you